Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the January edition of the History Today podcast. I'm Catherine Hadley, the website editor. In this edition, I speak to Anthony Lenton about the problems of the Treaty of Versailles and its difficult legacy. No country that didn't accept defeat would have accepted conditions as unequivocal as that. I also speak to Nicholas Mee about the medieval poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and his research to discover its patron and the place where it was set. And unlike a lot of Arthurian mythology, uh, the poem does seem to be set in a real landscape and in a real castle. Anthony Lenton is a member of Wilson College at Cambridge and the author of two studies of Lloyd George and the Treaty of Versailles. I discussed with him the difficult legacy of the Treaty of Versailles and its role in sowing the seeds of further conflict. Well, there's no doubt at all that Germany was defeated in the sense that she or her leaders accepted that she couldn't win. So that's point number one. And the terms of armistice made it absolutely clear that Germany could not start the war again, could not carry on, they were the equivalent to unconditional surrender. Germany had to withdraw her troops from all the vast tracts of territory that she had conquered. Um, it's true that there was no defeat in the sense of a crushing military victory on German soil. Not a single Allied soldier had entered Germany except as a prisoner of war. But on the other hand, after the armistice, the terms of ceasing the war, British allied troops were occupied of the Rhineland, there were bridgeheads across the Rhine, there was a 50 kilometer strip of land on the right bank of the Rhine, and there was simply no question, no country that didn't accept defeat would have accepted conditions as unequivocal as that. On the other hand, and this is a big on the other hand, it didn't feel like that to the Germans as they retreated, precisely because although they'd done a lot of um, damage in their conquests everywhere else, Germany had not been occupied during the war. But yet the terms that they imposed on Germany were terms that you would impose on a country that had been defeated. The initial German reaction was that Germany should not sign the terms. Um, they were regarded as the equivalent of the death of Germany, the ruin of Germany, the collapse of Germany, and the destruction of the Reich. The um, team that um, represented Germany at the peace conference, which included the then foreign minister, in fact resigned. They recommended to the government that the government should not sign. And it was only after much agonising in Berlin 
that the German government decided to capitulate because they knew that if they didn't, the Allies would carry on, uh, continue the occupation, would continue in, in effect an invasion and wouldn't stop until they got to Berlin and dictated terms there. The German government also knew that some of the states nearest to the German states nearest to where the Allies were would make their own terms. The Germans, the Allies would negotiate separately, individually with each of these states. In other words, the Reich created by Bismarck, founded in 1871, would start to disintegrate. And there were some people who said, well, so be it. Um, let them come and run us if they want. Something better might come out of this. But the, uh, so to speak, common sense point of view was, no, there has to, there has to be an end. We have to accept these terms because we have no choice. We have no weapons left. We have nothing to fight with. The, um, the old guard, uh, Hindenburg, recommended fighting on for the sake of honor, but he acknowledged that it would be, in the end, futile. And politicians don't believe in futile things, so they said we, we have to sign. But the president of the republic made one um, fateful qualification. He said, we, we will sign, but we remain convinced of the total unheard of injustice of the peace terms. Very much the authority um, on the Treaty of Versailles and its effects um, was Keynes, who wrote the economic consequences of the peace. And it seems that in his view, Germany was very much defeated. And, um, and he says, Germany was completely stripped of everything, and that sort of sowed the seeds of further conflict. Certainly, that was his perception, and that is the orthodox line that has persisted and, to a very large extent, continues to persist. Everybody says, yes, it's true, um, the terms are so appallingly provocative and crushing that Second War was bound to be the ultimate outcome. I don't accept that myself at all, but we're talking about Keynes's view. Um, Keynes's view was that the treaty ignored the really important things of the, the important challenges of the post-war post world and got its pri priorities quite wrong. So, he believed in the primacy of economics that, as he said, coal and food and transport were far more important than fixing frontiers and questions of sovereignty. He thought that the peace was a reactionary peace and not a forward-looking, a progressive peace. In particular, he felt terribly strongly passionately about the question of reparations, um, which he felt were so impossibly high that it would take generations of Germans to pay them off. In fact, that it would not even be possible to do that. Now, it, it's true that in, in later years, during the 20s, and largely as a result of Keynes's representations and the impact of the book, reparations were, were lowered, were decreased very considerably and arrangements were made whereby Germany was able to pay. But we're talking about the impact of the book, the overall impact of the book 
written in 1919 and reflecting Keynes's vision as he saw it. In addition to reparations, which he regarded as the, the major uh, blemish on the treaty, its biggest fault, in addition to that, he felt that the treaty throughout was a betrayal of the principles on which the armistice had been signed. The armistice was signed on the basis that the peace would be drawn up in accordance with President Wilson's famous 14 points and other associated uh, speeches and principles. Broadly speaking, a liberal peace, or what Wilson called a peace of justice. Keynes said that all these uh, fine promises had been violated and torn up, and the treaty was just as much a scrap of paper as the um, treaty in 1914 guaranteeing the neutrality of Belgium had been, in other words, Britain in particular, and the victorious allies in general had placed themselves, morally speaking, in an impossible position, and they, it was not for them to point the finger at Germany. And this is where the, the famous guilt complex comes in. Keynes was, um, the book was amazingly successful, not only because it was brilliantly written, but also because it expressed a mood, predominant, a prevailing mood, among the British and American delegations at the peace conference, which communicated itself very rapidly to liberal opinion at home and to the intelligentsia generally and young people and people who were running things after the war so that by the 20s or in the 20s, the economic consequences of the peace became the Bible of those who believed that it was essential to revise the treaty. The Frenchman Bainville wrote this um, outstandingly accurate and uncannily prophetic analysis of the treaty where he said, no, it's not economics, it's politics, it's power, it's geopolitics that will shape things in the next 20 years. And remarkably, um, his prophecies almost all came out one after the other, just as he'd written them in 1920. So um, Keynes, yes, no, certainly not an objective um, spectator of what was happening at Paris. He was a delegate. He represented the Treasury. Um, his, bo his boss was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Austin Chamberlain. But um, Chamberlain did not have a decisive voice in the Cabinet, and Keynes did not have the backing that he felt he was entitled to. Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, who uh, drew up the terms as far as Britain was concerned, British policy, um, had two delegates of his own choice, Lords Cunliffe and Sumner, um, both hardliners in inverted commas, and Keynes absolutely detested them. Both Keynes and the twins, as he called them, the, the nickname stuck, Keynes and the twins at various times gave advice to Lloyd George on reparations, but in the end, it was always on the side of the twins that Lloyd George came down. He claimed, listened, gave, he gave ear to Keynes, but he didn't really listen until after the book was written. So um, Keynes felt the utter futility of his being at Paris at all, since none of the ideas that he had, which were for 
feeding Europe quickly, getting some kind of American Marshall Plan to um, get the economies of Europe going again, to have negotiations with the Germans that would be moderate. None of this came about. So he said, if I were a German, I'd rather die than sign this treaty. And he, Keynes, uh, packed it in. He resigned and wrote to the Prime Minister, uh, my, my being here is no, of no value anymore, and I leave Europe, um, I leave the twins to gloat over the devastation of Europe. Uh, and that expresses the, the passion and the bitterness which he and many others of his kind felt about the treaty. They felt guilt, they felt remorse, they felt disappointment. Was this um, tawdry treaty, as they saw it, was this the outcome of all the deaths and all the slaughter and the four years of misery? Mm -hmm. And Keynes felt particularly strongly because as a member of the Bloomsbury Group, he, who working for the government during the war, he was constantly under attack from them. I say, why don't you pack it in? You're not really a pacifist. And he, he felt guilty about the war and he felt guilty about the peace. Why do you think that his work has had such an enduring legacy? Because it's so brilliantly written. He wrote with authority. He was an economist after all and his reputation as an economist um, Th thrived between the wars and after the wars and is still up at the top there. Everybody talks about Keynes, okay, so that's number one. An authoritative young man, well, he was only 35 when he wrote this book. Two, the passion of which I've spoken, written from the heart. Three, the incredible literary brilliance. Now, I don't believe for a moment that um, the popularity of the book was due to the economic argument. So pages and pages of of, of econo arguments on the e economics, which are um, pretty unreadable. But there are wonderful chapters about the um, conference itself and, and the men, Wilson, Clemenceau, Lloyd George, and Keynes, who was a friend of Lytton Strachey, the writer of the new, uh, the new biography, Eminent Victorians, the new biography of debunking, you know, men with feet of clay. Keynes took this from Strachey and introduced, infused the characters with this intensely dramatic element. So what was his plot? That Wilson was an idiot, he called him Presbyterian clergyman, inveigled into a kind of spider's web by Clemenceau, the French chauvinist, and Lloyd George, the Welsh wizard, or witch, called him, into um, agreeing to an extremely hard peace. Keynes concludes that Lloyd George himself, after he'd got what he wanted on reparations, then changed his mind and said we should make, the, we should, uh, make concessions on other points. But by this time, he could no longer, says Keynes, persuade uh, Wilson to soften his attitude. And, and Keynes's phrase is wonderful having um, bamboozled the president. After all, says Keynes, it proved more difficult to de-bamboozle the old Presbyterian than it had to bamboozle him in the first place. <laughs> all this um, is superb reading. It has lasted. Um, it's, it needs to be taken with a large pinch of salt. Not quite how it was. That was Anthony Lenton on the legacy of the Treaty of Versailles.
Nicholas Mee is the author of one of the feature articles in the January issue of History Today about the medieval poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Nicholas Mee has researched the poem extensively to discover its benefactor and the place in which it was set. I asked him what sparked his interest in the poem and how he went about his research. Well, um, I've been interested in the poem going back a long way, probably about 30 years really since I was first introduced to it. And I've always been intrigued by the fact that nobody knows who the author was and nobody um, knows where it was set. And unlike a lot of Arthurian mythology, uh, the poem does seem to be set in a real landscape and in a real castle. So, um, yeah, I've been intrigued going back a long way. And about maybe two years ago, I just decided to have um, another look through it and see if I could uh, look at all the, the candidate places for where it was set and see if I could come to some new conclusions. So there are places like um, Ludge Church in Staffordshire that a lot of people favour for the Green Chapel. And um, another one is uh, Wetton Mill Cave. But the, the problem with these candidates is that, that they might be a candidate for the Green Chapel, but they don't have an associated castle. And really, the, the action takes place in a castle and a, um, a Green Chapel that's only two miles away. So... I ruled out to my satisfaction most of the other candidates and I came up with another one which um, I think fits the bill perfectly. And has that um, ever been suggested before then, this new location that you found? I don't think it's been suggested before in, in the way that I've done it. There have been um, suggestions of the town simply because uh, there's a tradition there of Garland Day every year when um, a local person is dressed up as uh, covered in flowers and they are the green king for the day. So that has been noted before. How did you go about sort of researching and finding out that this might be the place? Well, I've, I've known um, the town for a long time because I, I come from Stockport, which is quite close to the region where the, the dialect of Sir Gwen and the Green Knight has been located. And the area that I think um, the poem is based, I've known since childhood, so I did know of it quite well. Um, the research has been as much um, reading the poem and reading what others have written about it. So a lot of online research and researching books rather than in the location itself. But I have visited. I have visited to sort of um, check how well my ideas do actually fit to the, to the location. So what evidence really, I mean, have you got for... Well, um, the, the poem has clear allusions to the Order of the Garter uh, because th there's a, um, a green girdle which is presented to um, Sir Gawain which plays a, plays a key role in the story and at the end of the tale he returns to Arthur's court and they decide that to commemorate Arthur, uh, Gawain's adventures they will all wear this green ribbon and um, Right at the end of the manuscript, uh, because the poem only exists in one manuscript, which is in the British Museum, right at the end of the poem, in um, a medieval hand, it says, which is the, it's a variant on the motto of the Order of the Garter. So that was the first clue that um, the, the, uh, the scribe at least connected the poem with the Order of the Garter. Um, and so I think 
it, it seems very probable that the patron of the poet was someone who was a, a prominent member of the Order of Garter. So that was the first step. Yeah. Now, the, um, the, the, the location, the castle, was actually owned by the, the person I think was the patron of the poet, who was a leading member of the Order of the Garter. And the castle was used as a royal hunting lodge. Now, in the poem, the, the lord of the castle goes out for three consecutive days hunting in a rugged landscape, which sounds very much like the Pennines. And on the first day, he hunts deer. Second day, he hunts um, boar. And on the third day, he hunts fox. Um, so th th those are some of the connections. Um, the, the castle, as I mentioned before, is also within a couple of miles of a very prominent uh, cave, which answers very well to the description of the Green Chapel. And um, right at the end of the poem, the, the Green Knight reveals his name, and the name sounds very much like a, a play on... Um, well, he, he describes himself as Berkelac, the hot desert. And my, in my interpretation, hot desert means high wilderness, or and it, desert was a term that was used for the um, the royal forests, which were areas of wilderness that were maintained for uh, members of the aristocracy to go hunting. So high wilderness, um, high royal forest, and that again answers very much to the, the place that I've identified. What was um, so special about this particular poem as well? Well, um, in, in my view, it's, it's probably the, the greatest English poem of that era, which is the, the second half of the 14th century. And I think it's just unfortunate that the language is so difficult. It was written um, at the same time as Chaucer, but Chaucer's dialect has developed into modern English pretty much because he was right, he was a native of the capital. But the, the Gwain poet's language, uh, although it might have been readily understood by people at the time, it's, it is quite difficult now. Um, if that were not the case, I think it would be much better known. Uh, but it, I think it's becoming increasingly well known. I mean, there was a recent uh, modernization by Simon Armitage, which I think has been very popular. Um, but I, I just think it's a great poem, actually. And, um, and it's also, how many surviving manuscripts? There's just one surviving manuscript, and that um, narrowly escaped destruction in a fire in the 18th century. And the, the manuscript contains four poems, and they're all thought to be by the same author. And one of them, um, which, which is called Pearl, is also another masterpiece, another one of the, the great um, English poems of the uh, 14th century. And are there any other um, surviving poems in that specific dialect and Middle English? There are um, a surprising number. Another feature of Sir Gawain is it's written in, um, in alliterative style. So uh, the, um, the consonants in each line that are stressed all uh, have the same sound. And um, there are quite a, a surprising number that I, I found. There are a surprising number that have survived in a sort of northwest Midlands alliterative style. The, the other ones, apart from the, the two I've mentioned, are not really in the same class as Sir Gawain. 
That was Nicholas Mee on the medieval poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can read Nicholas Mee and Anthony Lenton's articles in the January issue of History Today, which is on sale now. You can also listen to previous editions of our podcast by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash podcast.